This is the Author Biz Podcast with Stephen Campbell, session number five. Welcome to the Author Biz Podcast. I'm Stephen Campbell, and each week I'll bring you interviews, information, and insights focused on the business of being an author. You can find the episode show notes, links to everything mentioned in the show, and lots more information at theauthorbiz.com. Greetings and welcome to The Author Biz, the Monday podcast focused on delivering actionable information to help you run your business as an author. Today is Monday, July 28th, and I'd like to start the show by thanking you for listening. This shows a bit of a milestone as we're finishing up the first full month of the podcast, which launched on June 30th. I personally have learned a great deal in the past month, not only about podcasting, but I've learned a number of interesting things about writing and the publishing business. The Author Biz is actually modeled on what you'd see at a good writer's conference with different tracks for different interests. In the show's first month, we've covered tips and tricks for self-published authors to help sell books quickly. We spent an entire episode, or track, focused on dealing with large publishing houses with a New York Times bestselling author. We focused one episode on using experience you may have gained during your non-writing work life in your business as an author, And last week, our focus was exclusively on audiobooks. So four weeks, four sessions, all on completely different subjects. This week, our focus shifts back again to dealing with publishers, but this time with a legal twist. My guest is author Chuck Greaves, who writes the award-winning and wildly entertaining Jack McTaggart mystery series. But Chuck also writes award-winning literary fiction under the name C. Joseph Greaves. He spent 25 years as an attorney before deciding to pursue a variety of passions, including his passion for writing, after he retired from his legal career. In this episode, we'll discuss Chuck's books, and we'll take a deep dive into the differences between the two publishers he uses. I also had the opportunity to ask him several questions about publishing contracts and the benefits that accrue to authors based on the existing relationships between their agent or agency and the publishers. Since Chuck is fairly new to the writing business, we also discussed some of the advice he got when it came time to select an agent. And he gave me a great piece of advice. He said, hire the agent who, if the book doesn't sell within the next six months, will still return your phone call. (laughs) Uh, And with that advice in mind, I hired the young, enthusiastic, uh, but less experienced agent. And it worked out for me perfectly. Many people that listen to the author biz listen through apps or applications like iTunes or Stitcher, which make it easy to listen using your smartphone. Both iTunes and Stitcher are essentially search engines for podcasts, and both allow listeners to rate the show and leave reviews. These reviews work much like book reviews on Amazon. They help listeners to find the show, and they're amazingly valuable. One of this week's reviews came from at RVR, who said... I listen to this podcast on my weekend three-mile walk. I love the news briefs as it keeps me up to date without having to read five news articles. But this podcast is more about the interviews. Stephen asks insightful questions and gives the interviewee plenty of time to answer them in depth. Lots of good information, plus he puts all the links on the webpage. If you are an author or a fan, you need to put this podcast into your weekly rotation. Wow! Thank you very much, at Writer RVR, and others from the United States, Australia, and Great Britain who have taken the time to review the show over the past few weeks. It's reviews like yours that will help other authors find the show. If you'd like to review the show but don't know how to do an iTunes review, I've written some simple instructions that can be found at theauthorbiz.com slash review. In this week's News That Affects Authors section, we'll once again touch on the ever-present Amazon Hachette battle, as well as some early reports on how things are going with Kindle Unlimited. TheBookseller.com is reporting that Authors Unlimited, the group of writers who signed a letter calling on Amazon to resolve its dispute with Hachette, has said it is developing a long-term strategy. The authors in the group include literary luminaries, such as David Baldacci, Lee Child, Jeffrey Deaver, Stephen King, Barbara Kingsolver, James Patterson, and Donna Tartt. The heavy hitters in the author community. Or, as Douglas Preston, another member of the group, put it, 
Our group comprises many of the finest writers in the English language with billions of books sold, and we include journalists and authors in every field and genre imaginable and from all levels of success. I would particularly note that many debut authors have courageously signed this letter. Amazon's recent attempt to dismiss us as a bunch of rich, best-selling authors trying only to protect our income is not going to work. Okay, I'll let that quote stand on its own. I don't think it requires any comment. However, I will comment on a proposed strategy that they've uh, outlined, which is to place a full-page ad in the New York Times describing their position in the long-running debate. While I think running a full-page ad in the Times makes a great deal of sense from a marketing perspective, and you have to admit, it'll certainly get news coverage, but aren't they really preaching to the choir here? The New York Times has been covering this story from the very beginning, and I think it's fair to say their coverage is slanted a bit towards Hachette. If they actually wanted to reach readers who don't already agree with their position, they might want to consider a different newspaper or even a series of regional newspapers. This group and these authors keep referring to Amazon's proposals to move the negotiations forward as public relations stunts. It's hard to see how this idea of a full-page newspaper ad is anything different. But fear not, it isn't just Hachette and other top-earning authors feeling the sting from Amazon this week. Self-published authors are also questioning Amazon's different method of paying them for Kindle Unlimited that we brought to your attention last week. To recap, authors with books enrolled in Kindle Direct Publishing and Select who are participating in Kindle Unlimited are being paid from a pool of funds for each KU book, which is read beyond the 10% threshold. It's unclear how much, exactly how much, KDP Select authors will be paid for each of these purchases through Kindle Unlimited. But what is clear is how publishers and authors who are not part of KDP Select but instead have opted into Kindle Unlimited will be paid. They are paid the exact same price they'd have been paid if the reader had purchased the book outright. This creates what author Michael Sullivan, in an article he wrote at digitalbookworld.com, calls a two-tiered system. He describes authors being paid through the pool as receiving second-class status. As we mentioned last week, this is a departure for Amazon, and it's one that's being noticed and commented upon in the indie author community. It's still unclear how much a KDP Select author will be paid for each sale through Kindle Unlimited, but it appears as though it will be less, at least on average, than the publishers and authors who have opted into the system. One thing that is clear is that Kindle Unlimited, or KU, is moving books. Earlier this week, 45% of the Kindle Top 100 were KU books. It's obviously early days, and most, if not all, Kindle Unlimited accounts are currently unpaid trials that may never be activated. But 45% of the top 100 was a stunning number, at least to me. And to others. Apparently, it was too stunning. According to tests done by some independent authors, the rankings were set by download rather than readers exceeding the 10% threshold that would trigger an author royalty. So in other words... Each download counted as a sale, regardless of whether or not the book was read to the point where a royalty would be paid. There's obviously a great deal of work still to be done with regard to digital bestsellers when including sales through Kindle Unlimited. I'll have links to the news stories I mentioned, as well as everything we discuss in the interview section in the show notes, which can be found at theauthorbiz.com slash session five, and that's the number five. My guest today is Chuck Greaves, the award-winning author of the Jack McTaggart Mystery Series. He spent 25 years as a trial lawyer in Los Angeles before moving to Santa Fe in 2006 to pursue a career in writing. While practicing law, he was a frequent contributor of feature magazine articles and served as the president of the Pasadena Public Library Foundation. The interview begins with me asking Chuck to describe the third installment of his Jack McTaggart series, the Last Air. Well, thank you, Stephen, first of all. Um, the Last Air is the third installment in my Jack McTaggart series of legal mysteries. Uh, the first novel was Hush Money, which was published in 2012. Uh, the second novel uh, was Green-Eyed Lady in 2013. Uh, and now in 2014, I've come out with The Last Air. Uh, the protagonist is named Jack McTaggart. He's a 
sort of a blue-collar guy, although he's an attorney. He's something of a wiseacre. Uh, and a common theme that runs through the novels, and indeed runs through detective fiction generally, is, is the idea of Jack being uh, a fish out of water, or in his, his case, being a blue-collar guy who is thrust into a world of, of wealth and privilege where he is uh, condescended to, perhaps, or uh, underestimated but who prevails uh, by dint of his, his intellect and his uh, sterling character and his stick to uh, I told somebody recently, uh, Jack is a uh, lunch pail kind of guy who gets invited to the tea party and ends up breaking most of the china. <laughs> I'd say that's and accurate. Keeping... <laughs> so in keeping with that theme, uh, I was looking for a, a, a different setting in which to inject Jack. In the first book, he is in the world of equestrian show jumping. In the second novel, he's in the world of elective politics, where he represents a U.S. senator who gets in trouble shortly before Election Day. In the third novel, I thought Napa Valley and the world of fine wine would be a really great setting for Jack, and I have a background in that, as you may know. And so um, I, I sent Jack to Napa Valley, where he is hired by Philippe Giraud, who is the um, patriarch of... Uh, a prominent California wine family and the owner of the most storied winery in Napa Valley. And Philippe Trou has three children. He's got a son named Phil, a son named Alan, and a daughter, a beautiful daughter, named Claudia. And uh, Alan, his middle child, has gone missing under circumstances that suggest uh, that he's probably dead. Uh, but the father, Philippe, does not believe that his son is dead. And uh, his, the, his other son, Phil, has brought a lawsuit to declare his brother dead, to clear title to uh, the winery. Because under the terms of the family trust, uh, Phil will inherit the winery when he turns 40, if his brother is in fact dead. And so uh, Phil brings an action to declare his brother Alan dead. The father, Philippe, hires Jack to oppose that action because he believes, and he has evidence to prove it, that Elaine, uh, Alan, the, the, uh, the middle son, is in fact alive. So that's the basic premise of the book. There is a murder. I won't spoil <laughs> it for the readers, but a murder does occur. And uh, Jack is basically caught in a crossfire uh, between generations and between siblings battling for control over this valuable winery property. And as you mentioned, you have a background in wine. You're actually a uh, winemaker now, correct? I'm not a winemaker, but I own a, a small vineyard. Okay. And I grow grapes. I grow Viognier and Pinot Noir grapes, which I which I will be selling this year for the first time because I'm going to take my first crop this year uh, to a winery just down the road from where I live, uh, it, which is in Colorado, in southwestern Colorado. Correct. Okay. Now I uh, I spent a couple weeks in Napa a couple years ago, and uh, I, I was struck by how lifelike. The scene, the scenery that you set up there was, and it was, it was a little bit like taking a trip back, and I really enjoyed it. And I was trying to, in my own mind, saying, "Is this place really this, or was it that?" And uh, you threw in some actual restaurants like the the French Laundry, and uh, that was that was sort of a treat. I I enjoyed eating at the French Laundry, and I enjoyed visiting again. And it was a lot cheaper when I went again with your book. <laughs> That's right. Uh, yeah, I use real settings. I use the French Laundry, for example, and a couple other restaurants like Mustard's and uh, Trevina. Um, I use some resorts uh, that you know are real resorts, um, Meadowood and um, and Auberge de Soleil, for example. Uh, but the winery itself is completely fictitious, and of course, all the characters are completely fictitious. Now, are you a, a real wine geek? Do you really get into this whole process of of going around and doing the tastings and the whole the whole thing? Is that you? Yeah, I was a wine geek in, in a big way. You know, I uh, I came back to California where I'd done my undergraduate work uh, when I graduated law school in 1981, and I kind of. Uh, started doing wine tourism up in Napa and Sonoma counties and collecting wine. And once, once you get started, you know, it's like uh, uh, you, you fall down the rabbit hole pretty quickly. So I started doing wine tourism, uh, collecting wine, building a wine cellar, all, all that stuff. Uh, so I got into wine pretty heavily. Um, 
then when I retired in 06, I moved to Santa Fe. Uh, to a certain extent, I got out of that, although I did continue to travel to some wine regions like the Loire and, and the Cape Wine Lands in South Africa. But um, uh, when I moved here to Colorado two years ago, uh, it just so happened that the property we found at Sudlas had a vineyard, uh, had a Viognier vineyard. And I thought that was great. I, would, I really always wanted to do that. And so I've spent the last uh, two and a half years raising wine grapes. And uh, I've been raising what I inherited. Uh, I've had to fill in some gaps in the existing Viognier vineyard, and I planted a new block of Pinot Noir this spring. So uh, I'm looking forward to growing both uh, types of grapes. And like I said earlier, I'm going to have my first harvest, a partial har- harvest of Viognier this fall. So I'm li- really looking forward to that. Now, it was a... a- well, probably nine months ago that, that you and I talked for the first time, and it was the first time I was exposed to your work. And I'll tell people that are listening that Jack McTaggart was my favorite new character of last year. Since I had not read the 2011 book, Hush Money, I, I read it and Green-Eyed Lady back-to-back, which was just a treat for me. I love the whole sort of wisecracking P.I. genre, and I think your books sort of fit there, even though Jack's an attorney. And uh, they're just funny, smart, and uh, it was a real treat for me to have the opportunity to, to read The Last Air. Well, thank you, Steve. I really appreciate that. I now, know you read a lot of books. I, I do read a lot of books. And in between, when we, when we actually spoke last time, it was to talk about your first literary fiction book called Hard Twisted. So you're sort of writing multiple genres. You also have two different publishers, one for the mysteries and one for literary fiction. Correct. And apropos of the theme of this program, uh, I, I am writing for two different publishers, and we'll probably talk about that later. But yeah, um, Hard Twisted. Uh, was published by Bloomsbury, which, as you probably know, is a London-based uh, publisher. Uh, and um, the Jack McTaggart series is published by St. Martin's Minotaur. And I found it fascinating, and I've told this story multiple times, the, the way you got started with uh, with your writing career, where you'd written two books, you'd had an agent, and then the, the agent sort of fell away, and you entered the two books into a sort of a regional writers' conference. One was the literary fiction book, and the other was the wisecracking PI book. And if I remember correctly, they finished one and two in the contest. Do I have that right? Uh, that is right. There was it was the Southwest Writers International Writing Contest. It's based out of Albuquerque. Um, there were 680 entries in the year that I entered. Uh, and they're all blind judged. Uh, so they blind judge 14 different categories, uh, and then they take the 14 category winners and blind judge them against each other for an overall grand prize called the Storyteller Award. And um, Hush Money, the, the detective novel, won Best Mystery. Hard Twisted won Best Historical Novel. Um, and uh, Hush Money won the Grand Prize Storyteller Award, and I later learned from the judge that, that it was a close coin toss between uh, Hush Money and Hard Twisted. So, uh, yeah, that was, a, that was quite a special uh, uh, night for me, and that was my breakthrough, really, and, and that was how I came to um, sign with my current agent, uh, and shortly after that, signed both my publishing contracts. And we'll get back to the agent story in a while because there was there was the successful signing with an agent and a less successful signing with an agent that happened prior to that. But were the were the people that that judged the fiction that read both of yours did they believe it that it, that they were written by the same person? Because I wouldn't have believed it. I hardly believed it, knowing that I was going to be talking with you and and reading both books. Yeah, they're they're very different style as you as you know. Um, the one book is written in a sort of a breezy first person uh, uh, voice, and the other book was definitely literary, um, a very spare, atmospheric style of writing that that uh, uh, that was very much unlike. And also third person, not first person. So they were very different. And no, she she was shocked when she found out it was the same. She said she used the word gobsmacked actually when she, <laughs> she found out that they were written by the same person. And I have to thank you because I never have literary fiction that I can recommend to people that read literary fiction, and I now I have one that I can recommend, and everyone I've recommended to it, I've recommended the book to, Hard Twisted, loves it, and they think I'm a genius. <laughs> thank you, Steve. <laughs> 
So let's talk about the two publishers. One one of the publishers is a a big five publisher. That's your the mystery series. And your other publisher you mentioned was Bloomsbury, based in London. But this is your the publisher on at least at Amazon they referred to it as Bloomsbury USA. Yeah, for those who aren't familiar with Bloomsbury, uh, they're they're based in London, but they have um, offices in New York, Sydney, Hong Kong, etc. Um, they're probably most famous for having discovered and first published J.K. Rowling in her Harry Potter books. Um, they, they've published a number of books that you would know, Eat, Pray, Love by Elizabeth Gilbert, for mm-hmm. example. Uh, they've had several uh, uh, National Book Award winners, uh, but they're known for their literary fiction primarily. Uh, and when I, uh, after the contest that we just talked about, and after hiring my, my agent in New York, um, we had two very different books to shop, and uh, we ended up uh, selling the mystery series to uh, an imprint that does primarily mysteries, and that's the same art as Minotaur. And we, but they really don't do literary fiction, so they weren't as interested in the other books. So uh, we found a publisher that was interested not in mystery fiction, but in literary fiction only, and that was Bloomsbury. So I was very happy with uh, with both those placements. It's it's probably it would be instructive to take a step back here. And, and talk about how you found this agent. Uh, I, I would think it would be difficult to find an agent who would appreciate both styles of books. Is that, is that normal for, uh, for an agency to represent such vastly different books? Oh, yeah. I, I, think, I think most agents will represent whatever they think is saleable. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, based on their own personal preferences, they may they may choose not to represent certain genres, but by and large, they're open to anything that I think will will find success in the marketplace. And when, when you talk about an agency as opposed to an individual agent, um, an agency of any size will probably represent a broad spectrum of, of, of work, uh, from genre fiction to general fiction to literary fiction. Are you dealing with an agent or an agency? Well, I'm, I'm dealing with, uh, with an agent within the With agency. an agency, okay, all right. Yeah, yeah. I, I can tell you, it's a David Black agency in New York. Okay, all right. Yeah, they represent folks like um, uh, Mitch Albom and uh, and uh, Eric Larson. So they, you know, that, that's a good example right there. Mitch Albom uh, writes nonfiction primarily uh, or exclusively. I yes, think. and uh, uh, as does Eric Larson. But they represent both fiction and nonfiction. And because this is a big agency, they probably handle everything: your audio rights, your foreign rights. Every the soup to nuts. Sure, absolutely. Uh, they 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 sub they sub they have sub agents for um, motion picture, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, my motion picture agent is CAA in in, in Los Angeles, but uh, uh, other than that, they basically handle everything either themselves or through their own sub agents. What's what's the status of Jack McTaggart possibly coming to television or film? I wish I had something good to report on that. <laughs> it seems like a natural to me. Well, thank you. I, I'm going to have to put you in touch with the right people. Steve. <laughs> um, uh, when we first approached CAA, uh, the agent that I'm dealing with, his name is John Kassir, um, read uh, both Hard Twisted and Hush Money, was excited about both. He thought that Hard Twisted would make a, a good theatrical motion picture. As you know, it's very atmospheric and mm-hmm. set in beautiful country in, in, in Monument Valley. Um, uh, but he, he cautioned me that, that selling a book to Hollywood that basically is about a 13-year-old girl who gets kidnapped and raped isn't going to be an easy sell. And he was right about that. Uh, a lot of people looked at it, including George Clooney, uh, including Brad Pitt, um, but nobody, nobody bit so that's on hold for now, at least. Uh, as for the mystery series, he felt and feels, I hope, uh, that it would make a good series television character, Jack McTaggart would. And I think that's, that's what he has in mind for it, although, again, uh, I'm, I'm waiting for the phone to ring on that one. What are, do you have any sense of what the odds of that happening, just in general? Because everyone that writes a, a good book, uh, of course, wants it to be optioned by Hollywood for, for something, and, and many books are optioned, and then nothing ever happens. Do you have any sense? You lived in California for a long time. You probably can nail this down to the, the nth percentile. Uh, I wish I could. I, I really couldn't tell you as a, as a number. Uh, I, think it's, it's, I think it's rare. 
uh, for a book to, to be optioned. I think it's rare still for it to be made. I have a good story, though, about options. Uh, I've got a friend who's an author in New York, and uh, he also writes for magazines. Um, and he wrote a piece for Esquire magazine, I think it was, or GQ, one of the men's magazines, a few years back. It was about his search for the most beautiful girl in the world and about how he traveled the world trying trying to find the the country that had the most beautiful women and then uh, the region within that country that had the most beautiful women. And he finally found uh, the most beautiful women in the world in, I forget which Scandinavian country it was, like Sweden, let's say. Mm -hmm. Uh, And within the region where all the women looked like Nicole Kidman, uh, he asked around and everybody said, most beautiful girl in, in town is Lars's daughter. And so he went out, you know, in the snow one night and knocked on Lars's door, and sure enough, the father answers the door, and he says, my name is Greg Donaldson, I'm here from Esquire magazine, I want to write about your daughter. And the father says, come on in. And he calls his daughter down the stairs, and in, into the room walks the most beautiful woman in the world. Right? And uh, Greg takes her back to New York, like, like a King Kong. <laughs> and he writes this article for Esquire or GQ, I forget what it is, about him the process of finding the most beautiful girl in the world. That uh, magazine article was optioned multiple times. film was never made. But after optioning the story five or six times, uh, Greg built a house in the Hamptons. <laughs> I thought it was only screenwriters that could do that. Uh, it's pretty amazing. <laughs> That's a good story. The fact is, most of the money, you know, there's two ways to make money as an author. One is to get struck by lightning and become a mega New York Times bestseller. Uh, the other is to sell your product to, to Hollywood. Okay, so you wound up, you wrote these two books, you won these awards, you found an agent, and you found two different publishing companies. What was the process like between the two of them? signing an agreement with them, just sort of for people who who are in process of finding an agent and then finding a publisher, walk us walk us through the, the process of you found an agent an agent and they're shopping your book around and you know, how is it actually sold? What actually happens? Sure. Let me go back a little bit earlier on the process for me because I had one of those moments that makes for a good story. I you know, I I had written the first novel, Hush Money, and I'd sent out query letters to 30 or so New York agents and gotten 30 form rejections back while I was writing the second novel, which was Hard Twisted. Uh, And then when I had both novels done, as we talked about, I entered them in the contest. Um, I had both books out on submission to different agents at the time that the contest results were announced. Uh, So I was able to come back home the next day from the banquet and send emails to the agents who still had them under submission, one, one or both books, and say, oh, by the way, uh, the book just won this award. I was sitting in my office, my home office, about two days later, uh, working on polishing uh, Hard Twisted, when the phone rang, and it was the David Black agency calling, and my, my agent, Antonella Inarino, on the phone, uh, calling to say she had just finished Hush Money, she loved it, she had already earlier read Hard Twisted, she loved that, she wanted to represent me. And that's the phone call that, you know, every author uh, waits for. And as I'm talking to her, on my computer screen, I get an email pop-up that says, agency contract attached. I'm a different agent. <laughs> so in the course of 30 seconds, I, I went from having no agent to having at least two offers. Uh, so I had to make a decision, uh, and, and what it boiled down to for me was choosing between a young, admittedly inexperienced, but, but very enthusiastic woman, uh, or uh, a fella who was, I wouldn't say his name, he was a grizzled veteran of the trade whose name you'd know if you, if you know the, the industry, um, who's represented you know, major New York Times best-selling authors. But I have, a, I have a concern that having an agent like that, if we weren't able to sell the product right away, that he might move on to the next new shiny thing and, and I wouldn't get my phone calls returned. Um, so that was kind of what I had to, to weigh in my mind. And I called my author friend about whom I just told the story about, uh, about optioning his uh, magazine articles. Mm-hmm. And he gave me a great piece of advice. He said, 
hire the agent who, if the book doesn't sell within the next six months, will still return your phone call. <laughs> uh, and with that advice in mind, I hired the young, enthusiastic, uh, but less experienced agent. And it worked out for me perfectly because uh, she then shopped it. Well, I'll tell you, there's a story that goes with the, the St. Martin's deal, too. Uh, Antonella gets all the credit in the world, but actually the publisher actually came to me initially because what happened was this. At the same time that I had uh, entered both manuscripts in the Southwest Writers' Contest, I had also entered the manuscript of Hush Money Only, the, the detective mystery story, in the Tony Hillerman contest. Mm-hmm. There's a, a, a joint venture between the Tony Hillerman uh, contest folks, Ann Hillerman and, and Gene Schoenberg, and uh, St. Martin's Press. So they have a deal where if you win the contest, uh, you have a guaranteed publishing contract with a guaranteed um, advance from St. Martin's. Um, I entered the manuscript in that contest as well, simultaneously. I didn't win that contest, but I later found out through the grapevine that what happened was my manuscript was sent out to uh, Craig Johnson to read. Mm-hmm. And for those who don't know Craig, he, he writes the Walt uh, Wong Meyer series of, uh, of mystery novels. And Craig uh, read it and sent it back to St. Martin to the note saying, if this guy doesn't win, you should still publish his book. So that's how uh, St. Martin's contacted me. Uh, Peter Joseph is my, my editor at St. Martin's, called me and said, we'd like to publish your book. Um, so I was able to, at that point, say, oh, great, I've got an agent. Uh, let me put you in touch with her. So I, I actually sold, uh, in a sense, uh, the, the series. Um, but Antonella then, a few months later, uh, was able to sell Hard Twisted to Bloomsbury, which was all her, all her work. Now, you've spent 25 years as an attorney. Most publishing contracts, I, I get the impression that most publishing contracts are fairly stock and they're not the kind of things that a first-time author is going to be given the opportunity to negotiate for. Is that a true statement or do I have that wrong? No, that's absolutely true. I, I, it's true Not even, It's true for most authors. Um, the way it works, Stephen, you probably know this, each of these publishing houses have a standard form contract. It's their boilerplate. Okay, mm-hmm. and when you when you make a deal for your book, you get a one page deal memo that, that that just has the title of the book, the advance you're going to get, uh, a few other key deal terms, uh, and that's and that memorializes the, the the basic deal, and then they plug those terms into their form contract, and and you have the, your contract. There's room for some negotiation on on fine points. But by and large, they're not going to make major changes to their boilerplate for you or anybody else unless you're Stephen King or something like that. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting about the process is there's, when, you come in, when you come on the scene, you as an author, there's a whole history that's already taken place between that publisher and your agency. Okay, So let's say hypothetically publisher A has had multiple dealings with agency 1. Okay? And they've, let's say, published, you know, 50 books together. And during the course of those negotiations that predated you, uh, they've come to agreement on certain things that the agency insists upon and the publisher has agreed to, to give on. So there's sort of an understanding or, or a series of precedents that have come before you so that when you come along, uh, you have the benefit of those negotiations that have happened in the past between your agency and that particular publisher. Uh, I'll tell you another story that happened to me. Uh, when uh, we sold uh, Hush Money to St. Martin's, uh, Macmillan, of which St. Martin's is a subsidiary, uh, had just come out with their new, new and improved uh, form contract. And so it was the first, I was the first author to sign under their new contract through the black agency. Mm-hmm. So there ensued, instead of just a few you know, tweaks here and there, there ensued a very lengthy negotiation because they had to go back and renegotiate all these uh, points to try to bring them into alignment with what they had agreed to previously. So there was a lot of give and take, a lot of uh, behind-the-scenes wrangling that went on over my contract that, that ended up benefiting subsequent uh, clients of the black agency. 
So the ACP does play a role. And uh, it, it, it does matter, you know, uh, when you sign with an agency that has uh, some blue chip clients that have been able to um, wrest certain concessions from publishers in the past. You do, to a certain extent, uh, benefit from that if you're a brand new author just coming on the scene. If that makes sense, it makes a great deal of sense, and that's that's valuable, useful information for people looking for an agent, and that's that's one more reason to do some due diligence um, when you're when you're selecting an agency. Uh, of course, it, anyone who has the opportunity to even sign with an agent, it, it's it's going to be really easy to just want to jump in and say yes. Uh, but it it's probably not a bad idea to do some due diligence and and see if those benefits will accrue to you. Absolutely. It's nice if you have a choice. I mean, yes. unfortunately, most, a lot of new authors, you know, uh, they get the first, agent, the first agent agrees to represent them, and they're faced with a choice. They can say yes, or they say, well, let me hold on and, and, and look behind door number two. And oftentimes, that's, that's a tough thing to do, unless you have offers coming at you at the same time, which I was fortunate to have. Um, most new authors will probably sign with the first reputable agent who agrees to represent them. Now, when you're, say, negotiating the deal points, uh, the, the one-page deal point letter, is there negotiation in terms of the royalty advance, or do they just say, this is what we're willing to give you as a first-time author? Oh, you know, everybody's experience is different there. Um, usually there's an offer, and there's a counteroffer, and there's a negotiation. If you're fortunate and, and you have multiple publishers um, bidding for your property, then you may uh, have an auction. Uh, and if that happens, you're going to have uh, publishers bidding against each other. Uh, and and the, sometimes those auctions, um, you know, result in some eye-popping uh, advance numbers. Right, that and those happen. those are the ones that make the trade papers. <laughs> those are the ones you read about. And, yes. and that didn't happen to me, unfortunately. <laughs> but uh, but uh, more power to those who've had that happen to them. Indeed. So that was the, that was the way you dealt with the first publishing company. Was it pretty similar dealing with the second? Um, from, no, it, it was much simpler because there there wasn't that issue of having to renegotiate the brand new contract. Mm-hmm. Uh, so mm-hmm. uh, we signed that contract rather quickly. I mean, relatively quickly compared to the other one. Uh, and it's interesting, you know, uh, these contracts. I've seen two of them because I have two different publishers. Uh, they're like night and day. I mean, the one the one uh, publishing house, uh, the contract with exhibits was 40 pages of, of, of uh, single-space fine print. Uh, with the other uh, publisher, it was a 15-page document. So, you know, it's interesting. Were there significant points that were missing in the 15-page document? No, there was just a lot less gobbledygook. I, I, <laughs> Is that I, a legal I, I, term? I, I thought it was... I thought it was a cleaner, more understandable contract, mm-hmm. uh, more like something I would have written, uh, as opposed to the other one, which looks like Frankenstein's, Frankenstein's monster with different things patched together and whole paragraphs crossed out. And you, know, you could tell there was a protracted negotiation there. Mm-hmm. And so you've got these two different contracts, and then there is a period probably of editing and publication, et cetera, et cetera, uh, before the books are finally released. Uh, was there a difference in dealing with the two public with the two publishers while that was going on? No, because that comes down to your relationship with your editor, uh, really. Uh, the way it works, as you as you well know, Steve, you you submit your hopefully uh, well polished. Uh, draft to your agent, pardon me, to your editor. Uh, the editor comes back to you with some sort of big picture suggestions, uh, comments, proposals. Um, I, neither of the editors I've dealt with in my brief career uh, have told me, you need to do this or you need to do that. They've said, uh, wouldn't, it be, wouldn't it be better if, if this happened or, or consider this or, you know, this character needs to be fleshed out a little bit more, in our opinion. But they've left it up to me to say, okay, I agree with that, and I'll do it. And in most cases, uh, I, I have great respect for my editors in both cases. Uh, they've read a hell of a lot more books than I have. Hmm. And I, you know, I've taken their suggestions to heart, and I've tried to, in about 90% of the cases, tried to accede to, to their requests. So it's a collaborative process. Now, so 
you get the the editor's uh, sort of big picture comments. You make those changes. Then it's, maybe that goes back and forth a couple times. Then once you're both happy with the book, it goes to a copy editor, and then you get the blue pencil copy edited version back. And again, you get a chance to go through and make uh, as many changes as you need to make on that. And then you're going to get what's called first pass pages back, where the book is uh, typeset but not bound, and you get to make one more read through and make small word changes if you like. Nothing that's going to change the, the pagination. Uh, so built into the process are at least three or four edits. And of course, before you even give it to your editor, you've yourself had you know gone through four, five, six, a dozen revisions, depending upon how you work. So the final product is, is edited and polished to a fairly well. Now, because of what I do, I often, I oftentimes get advanced reader copies or arcs of books, and stamped on the front, it always says something to the effect of, you know, not a final copy. Are there typically changes between the arc and the and the final published version? Yes, because the arc, I mentioned that there's something called first pass pages, that, mm-hmm. that is the typeset book that's before it's bound. That while while you're while you as the author are going through that and making any final last word changes, the publisher is binding that and sending okay. that as an arc. All right, so that's so the, the arc. arc that you read uh, is uh, the second to last version of the book. Okay. So all this is done, and then it's publication time. Is was there a, a noticeable difference in timing of the all these processes? from the two different publishers? No, it, it generally takes a year between the time that you submit your uh, manuscript uh, and the time the book comes out. At least that's been my experience. Um, because I had two different publishers and because they didn't want to interfere with each other, uh, they we agreed to stagger them on six months apart. Uh, so the one book came out in June, the other book came out in November. Uh, and also because we didn't want to, to create uh, reader confusion, uh, the original request was that I, I published uh, one of the books under a pen name. Uh, and I pushed back against that because I said, you know, what if the, the mystery series flops and the literary fiction takes off? I don't want to be Joe Smith the rest of my you know, writing career. So we, we compromised and we agreed to do different versions of my name. So the mystery series is published as Chuck Graves, and the other fiction is published as C. Joseph Graves, just to, to signal to the reader that uh, that uh, you know they're they're different books. I make no secret of the fact that they're both me. Mm-hmm. If you go to my website, you'll see it's got both names there. But um, so they they did want that. Uh, but by and large, the process was pretty much the same, dealing with both publishers in terms of uh, the editing process and the time frames involved. Could you identify any specific, significant differences between the way the two publishers have dealt with you without maybe even identifying which one's which? Yeah, I can. And and those differences really uh, start to become evident once the book is, is published or it's about to be published. Um, there are different philosophies, I'm sure, among all the publishing houses in terms of how much resources they're going to devote to the promotion of the book. Uh, promotion is the, is the big item. Um, what kind of promotional budget they give you, what kind of clout they have within the uh, media community in terms of getting your book uh, out there and getting it noticed, um, what they're willing to do for you, what they expect from you. Uh, most of it comes under the heading of, of promotion and marketing. That's where I think you see the differences. At least that's where I've seen it. Some publishing houses have the reputation for putting out a lot of books and not putting a lot of uh, muscle into any particular book unless it it becomes successful, at which point they'll get behind it. Uh, Whereas other houses who publish fewer titles uh, will put more resources into any particular title. Uh, and, um, And you really notice the difference there in the marketing and promotion. One of the things that we as readers hear about and read about is is the idea of the big initial push behind a book and how important it is 
to to have a successful launch. Is that something that's still true today? Again, it varies by publishing house what they're willing to do uh, and, and what they're able to do successfully. Um, I have a friend uh, who publishes with Algonquin, which is another uh, non-Big Five publisher, but that is very well regarded in the literary fiction community. And I know they do some very um, unusual, innovative uh, types of things in terms of publishing the books. Uh, really outside-the-box promotion that I think is really beneficial to their authors. Uh, Bloomsbury did a, a, a great job for me. I mean, Bloomsbury got me in, uh, you know, reviewed by the LA Times, reviewed by all the London papers, the London Times, blah, blah, blah. Uh, I was in the uh, the um, Qantas Airlines in-flight magazine, so when you got off the airplane and anywhere in Australia, uh, the books were in the bookstores there in the, in the airports in a special uh, case with the Qantas, you know, um, thing. Uh, I was interviewed by Australia Public Radio. We have kind of Kate Evans, who's like the Terry Gross of Australia, mm-hmm. you know, interview with me. I mean, just great stuff. So it depends on what contacts they have. Um, it depends on how many authors they are trying to promote at the same time they're promoting you. Uh, you know, there's limited resources, obviously, and if they're promoting five books that month as opposed to 20 books that month, that makes a big difference. Now, you've, you've been doing this for a few years now, not a long time, but one of the things that appears to be changing fairly quickly is the disappearance of mass market paperbacks of books. I, I, I looked at Amazon today, and I did not see a mass market for Hush Money or Green-Eyed Lady. And traditionally, when the new, the new release comes out, the, the last year's release becomes a mass market paperback, et cetera, et cetera. Is that something that just in general isn't done that much anymore? I think publishers are shifting away from mass market, uh, and I think ebooks are filling that space. And I think the publishers are looking for ebooks to fill that space. So I, I think that's the short answer. I, I think you know it's hard to predict the future of publishing, but but smart people I've I've listened to have said that uh, the future of publishing will be uh, fewer hardcovers. Those will be uh, sort of for collectors and, and people who want a first edition of that particular author's work. Or if they do publish them, they'll publish them in small batches to satisfy that demand. Uh, the the sweet spot will be uh, trade paperback because that's where uh, people seem to be reading books nowadays. The price point is better mm-hmm. uh, for those who don't like uh, electronic ebooks uh, and like to read a physical book but don't want to spend. $26 for a hardcover. And trade paperbacks are the larger version of the, the paper, almost the size of a hardcover, but just with a soft cover. Right, exactly. Uh, and then, and then uh, the thinking is that, uh, that uh, mass market will go away altogether and be replaced by e-books. And that, that's, that's, I've heard more than one person say that, and that, that seems to make sense to me. It does, and as a reader... Um, I, I do find myself buying hardcover collectibles, keepsake editions, basically, for just people whose, whose work I particularly love, and I just want to have them in my bookshelf as opposed to on my e-reader. And I may have already read them digitally, I, but I still want to have a physical book on the bookshelf. I think a lot of uh, readers have this experience. They walk into a bookstore, if they see a, a new hardcover from somebody who they love, they'll buy it. Mm-hmm. Because like you say, they want to put it on their bookshelf alongside the others. Um, if it's somebody they like, but they don't really love, they want to read it someday, they might wait for the paperback, or they might you know, go home and order the ebook. So I think that's, you know, that's kind of the buyer experience today. Where do libraries come into play with the, in terms of the overall consumption of hardcover books? Is it, is it becoming a larger and larger percentage? Well, you know, the number of libraries probably hasn't changed dramatically. It's a question of whether or not the libraries are going to take your book. Um, uh, St. Martin's does a great job with their library division for me. Uh, my books are in a lot of libraries, uh, and I know because a lot of libraries put their catalogs online, and if you look on Google, you know, you can see all these libraries that have your books, and, and you say, wow, you know, my, my books, you know, not only at the New York Public Library, it's at the London Public Library, it's at, you know. So uh, I'm in a lot of libraries. 
and libraries uh, will buy the hardcover. Uh, so um, I think, you know, coming out of the gate, you have an automatic, you've automatically sold, let's say, a thousand books, you know, on day one because libraries are going to order them. And, and, you know, that's that's one of the advantages when you talk about this whole issue, which we haven't talked about, which between traditional publishing and, and independent publishing. Uh, you know, one of the great advantages of being traditionally published, in my mind, is not just that you're going to be in bookstores around the country, but you're going to be in libraries uh, all over the world. Uh, and so, you know, that's one of the things you're going to give up if you make the shift from uh, traditional publishing to independent publishing. And that, I, I think the library issue might actually be bigger than the bookstore issue. The bookstore issue is is perhaps more of an ego thing, but you can, you can buy the books any number of places. It doesn't have to be the local Barnes & Noble uh, here in Naples. But uh, if the li- if the libraries are not able to buy your books, then that's a big, that's a large number of books that aren't being sold. Yeah. Plus, plus, if you think about it, you know, putting a book in a library, it's not like putting it in the hands of a of a private buyer. I mean, it's out there in public, and and multiple people are reading it. So you can, you know, you get a lot more bang out of a thousand books in a library than you get out of a thousand books sold to private buyers. Uh, you know, you may be building a, a large uh, fan base. Because uh, that that book may circulate, you know, twenty, fifty, a hundred times. Your first book, Hush Money, um, was released as an audio book as well, and it was nominated for an Audi Award, which was it's pretty prestigious. For I mean, it, it is the most prestigious award for audio books. Were you involved in any way, shape, or form in the production of that book? In the production of the audio book, yes. Mm-hmm. Other than writing uh, the novel. Yeah, no, I was not at all. Um, I guess I've heard of publishing contracts in which the author, actually, I, I, I have seen this uh, because um, I just signed one. Uh, there is there is a clause that you see in publishing contracts that gives the author um, uh, consultation rights on the um, on the performer who's going to read the audiobook. I had no role whatsoever in selecting. Uh, Dan Butler, who reads, who's read all the Jack McTaggart books, he's great. Uh, but you know, to me, it was you know, I had no say in who who was going to do it. Uh, I had no, uh, I didn't hear a preview of it. Uh, the first time I heard the audiobook is when it came out, and they sent me a copy. Uh, and that's an interesting experience, by the way, to drive down the road in the car listening to your your book being read to you by a professional actor. <laughs> the first time that happens, it, it's really eye opening. It's uh, yes, I I can't even imagine what that's like, other than a, a combination of thrilling and horrifying. <laughs> it's a little bit of both. You know what's funny about it? When, when you write a book, there's a certain rhythm to the words in your head. Uh, uh, I don't have a better word for it than that. There's just a certain rhythm to how the sentences flow. And when somebody else reads it, they may not have the same rhythm as you do. And it's a little bit off-putting at first to hear somebody else's rhythm. Uh, but, uh, you know, you get over it. Uh, but it, it is a combination of, uh, of uh, yeah, you're, you're a little bit, you cringe a little bit, but you, uh, you smile at the same time. I'm sure there are situations that, that you wish you'd chosen a different word or things like that that you, you might not see if you were just reading it for the 119th time. But when you hear it for the first time, I, I bet every word is there. Yeah, you know, it's funny. There are some writers who like to read their work out loud for that very reason or have somebody read it to them out loud for that mm-hmm. very reason, which you know, I can see where you have that benefit. Uh, you talked about the audio award, though, to go back. Uh, yes. Hush Money, Hush Money was nominated for several awards, as you know, the, mm-hmm. the Shame and the, and the, uh, uh, the Rocky and the Reviewer's Choice. But uh, the Audi was, uh, it came to me out of left field. I had no idea. I was up against uh, Laura Lippman and uh, Louise Penny, some really, you know. Uh, Top-notch competition. Fabulous. Yeah, really fabulous. In fact, I ran into uh, Laura Lippman at the uh, Left Coast Crime Conference that year, and I mentioned to her, by the way, we're, you know, we're finalists for the Audi Award. Uh, that was nice. Um, it didn't win, unfortunately, but it was it was nice to be nominated. Indeed, that's what they always say, and and you learned that from living in uh, Southern California for so many years. <laughs> Happy to be here. <laughs> you your 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 most recent book was published on June twenty fourth, and you've just had a series of book signings. 
some in California, some in Colorado, uh, some in your general area, some in California where you're from. What do you personally get out of doing those events? You know, that's an interesting question. It's a question I've been asking myself, too, um, because, again, depending on the publisher, you're either doing it uh, on a budget that they give you or you're doing it out of your own pocket. Mm-hmm. Okay. The events, for me at least, vary in size. On this tour, my audience is varied in size from about 120 to about 10, <laughs> okay, mm-hmm. uh, depending on the venue. So uh, if, every, if every event was 120 people, if I was Neil Gaiman or something like that or, or, or Dan Brown and I was going to get 100-plus for every event I did, it would probably be worth it you know, if I had the, the time to go out and do it. Uh, when you go and you go to a small bookstore and there's 10 people there, you're probably not getting a lot of bang for your buck uh, in terms of hand-selling 8 or 10 or 12 copies of your book. But um, uh, an author friend of mine once told me, uh, wisely I think, that as an author you do bookstore events not so much for your benefit but for the bookstore's benefit. Uh, And... Uh, it helps get customers into the bookstore. Uh, you establish a relationship with the bookstore uh, that's personal so that in the future when your book comes out and they see it on the, in the catalog, they'll say, yeah, I, you know, I like that guy. I'll, I'll, I'll take his book. So it's a way to build the relationships between the author and the bookstore and between the bookstore and its customers, and it's good for the whole sort of ecosystem of, of, of literature. And so I guess it's part... Um, obligation uh it's part promotion obviously mm-hmm. uh, but but there's a third element to it too and that is you know writing is a very solitary uh, undertaking i mean you spend a year of your life sitting in front of a, of a laptop screen in my case and then you get two or three weeks out of the year where you get to go out and and meet people you know meet fans and, and have people shake your hand and say i love your book but i want your autograph i mean that's kind of an ego you know boost mm-hmm and it's it's nice to get out and meet people and and uh, and enjoy that part of the the uh, whole experience of being an author. Was there any part of that that surprised you when you started doing this? Oh boy, surprised me? Not really. Um, it's weird to sign an autograph for the first time, <laughs> <laughs> you know. Um, but you get used to it. Well, let me let me rephrase the question then. Would you have any specific advice to an author who's preparing for their first event? Well, I'll tell you about my first event. Okay. Uh, first book signing I ever did was at Collected Works Bookstore in Santa Fe, New Mexico. They arranged for my first ever book signing for David Morrell, who, who as you may know, is a veteran mystery author who's claims to fame include having created the Rambo character in his book, uh, First Blood. Uh, David Morrell uh, was there to introduce me and sit on the stage with me and ask me questions. Wow. Uh, what a great experience that was. Yes. My first ever book signing. So that would be your advice, to have the, uh, the bookstore owner have David Morrell come out and, and introduce <laughs> <Absolutely>. you. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, you, got, you have to have a shtick. You have to be able to talk about yourself and your book. You have to have something prepared. You can't just go up there and, you know, hammer, hammer, hammer. So uh, if you're self-conscious about speaking in public, uh, it's something you're going to have to get over pretty quickly. And, you know, once you get over it, uh, it becomes enjoyable. And, and you, you know, it's fun to tell people about your book. It's fun to uh, promote yourself. And the best part of all for me, for the author, I think, is the question and answer period afterwards because you get to... You know, talk about the process and answer people's questions. And there's often, there's always one or two uh, aspiring writers in the crowd, and they mm-hmm. want to ask you questions about process and about the industry. So that's that's fun. No, it's 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 very positive, and, and I look forward to it. Now you you've uh, done a I sort of dread that the first time, but I look forward to it now. You you've done enough of these now that you you probably have some mental averages in your mind. If if you were going to do a, a signing at a bookstore and 100 people were there, how many books would you expect to sell? Oh, maybe 50. Okay, that's, that's uh, more than I would have thought. Um, yeah, because some people will buy two or three, and, and many will not buy. But again, it depends. When I do a, a signing at my local bookstore, which is Maria's in, uh, in Durango, Colorado, 
uh, if there were 20 people there, there were 20 friends of mine who, who were waiting to buy the book. And mm-hmm. I sell 30 books, you know. Uh, but sometimes we go to a, you know, th- this year I did Northern California for the first time. And I did uh, bookstores in Berkeley and in uh, Healdsburg. And uh, I, I, was ex- I, I was fully prepared to walk in there and have nobody be there, you know, <laughs> and chat with the uh, owners and leave. But no, there were, there were uh, at least 10 people at both events, which was nice. I'll tell you something. I, I met Jonathan Edison, who's one of the great American authors, as far as I'm concerned, mm-hmm. uh, at a book signing at uh, Maria's. And I walked in, and there were four people there. Because he was there, he was on a, a paperback version of a book he, he, he toured on earlier, when it, when it came out in hardcover. So he wasn't expecting a big turnout, but he goes out and does, you know, he does tours of 100 uh, bookstores per tour. Uh, and he, again, he's visiting the bookstores to build those relationships between himself and the bookstore. Uh, so he didn't faze him one bit that, that there were four people there. But the cool part was, you know, we chatted and we went out to dinner afterward, and now he's a good friend. No, oh, that is cool. Uh, yeah, so I, I encourage uh, people generally, and authors in particular, to go out and support events at their local bookstore because you make all kinds of great connections just chatting with other authors. And I know that you do it a lot because oftentimes when you're at an event, there's a picture of you on Facebook the next day. And uh, so it, it, it seems like you're always having a good time and there are always people there. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, and again, it, it's always a treat to, to do an event where you're expecting 20 people and you get 100. That, that's, that's really special. How else do you connect with readers? I mean, you're, you're fairly active on Facebook. Uh, you have a website at chuckgreaves.com. Uh, you have a mailing list. Uh, are, are there other ways that you connect with readers? Yeah, you know, I, I'm not a great one for social media. Uh, I don't do Twitter, for example, or, or a lot of these other things. Uh, I do Facebook. I have both an author page and a profile. Um, and, you know, I'm not really great about updating those either. Uh, to me, I'd rather spend my time writing uh, than spend my time doing self-promotion. I, I don't know how effective Facebook and these other social media outlets really are for promotion. Uh, I, I think Facebook is great for you to reach back and, and let your high school classmates know that you're now an author. <laughs> you know? uh, but once you've done that, uh, you know, once every who knows you knows you're an author. At that point, I don't think you're selling a lot of books on Facebook, to be honest with you. Um, but there are people who, you know, God bless them, are out there really you know, posting every day, and maybe they know something I don't know. It, it depends on what your, what your strategy is. I think a lot of um, indie published folks do a lot of their marketing uh, using social media, and it must work for them at some level because obviously they're doing it. Um, I don't know. And there's probably less need for a traditionally published person who at, at least th- there is the thought that there's a publishing company uh, with some marketing money behind them that, that's out there doing some of this stuff for them. Yeah, yeah. In theory, that's how it works. <laughs> <laughs> well, let, let's wrap up. But first, let me uh, thank you for your time today. Uh, you've been very generous. And I, again, I love the book. What, what have you been reading lately that you particularly enjoyed? Oh, gosh. You know... Um, I, I, the mystery series, the, the mystery author I've really been enjoying lately and, and reading all of his books is uh, uh, Joe Nesbo. I don't know if you read Joe Nesbo. I have uh, only read yeah. one, the, the big book. That, uh, that's the only one I've read. I haven't read any more. Is it a series? Oh, yeah. Okay. It, it's the Harry Hole series. Okay. Uh, he's got a, uh, a series protagonist who's a uh, uh, Norwegian uh, police officer. And um, it's probably eight to ten books in the series, and I'm just I'm going back and reading them all. And I think they're I think he's great, so I really enjoy his stuff. Um, you know, if if Nelson DeMille or or Michael Connelly uh, publishes a mystery book, I'll I'll, I'll go out and get it. Uh, other than that, I'm just I read I read very eclectic stuff. I'm reading different things. Um, gosh, well, I, well right now. <laughs> I'm writing a book right now that involves quite a bit of research, so I'm reading a lot of historical stuff about Lucky Luciano and Thomas Dewey and their and their 1936 vice trial. So I'm reading books. I've got like a, a dozen books about Luciano and a couple books about Dewey and a book about George Martin Levy and a bunch of um, 
books related to that trial that I'm that I'm reading, and that makes it tough to do a lot of pleasure reading because I'm I'm doing this obligatory reading. On top of that, and this is another aspect of being an author, you get people who are who want you to read their stuff, mm-hmm. and uh, you know I try to accommodate that to the extent that I can. Um, I was at a social event the other day, and a, you know, a, a, a new author approached me and, and asked me to, to read his book. And I told, promised him I would. Uh, I had a, a newspaperman uh, on this book tour who, who wrote a nice profile about my book, asked me if I would read his book, and I told him I would. So, you know, that kind of stuff goes on too. So you've got you've got pleasure reading, you've got uh, research reading, and you've got other obligatory reading, and, and between all of that, uh, and your writing, and your vineyard. It makes for a pretty busy day. So what's what's next for you? Is the next book to be published uh, literary fiction from Bloomsbury? It's going to be a Bloomsbury novel. It's going to be a little bit less literary, I think, than, than Hard Twisted was, but it's going to be in the same vein. It's going to be in a, it's a novelization of true events um, set in the same time period, coincidentally, the, the, the middle 1930s. Um, but it's, as I mentioned, it's about the vice trial of Lucky Luciano. Uh, and it so happens that Luciano's uh, uh, defense attorney, George Morton Levy, um, I, I had access to his trial file from the trial, which is some material that nobody's ever seen before. So it's going to be interesting. It's going to be some never-before-seen stuff, and that book is due at the publisher August 31st, and I expect to see it in bookstores uh, in the fall or winter of 2015. That's going to be exciting. I hope so. Well, Chuck, thank you very much. I appreciate your time today. Hey, Steve, uh, let me just say, I, I, I think you're one of the best interviewers in the business, and I, I always appreciate the opportunity to be on your show, and I hope you get to do it again. Thank you very much, Chuck. I appreciate it. All right. Thanks for listening today. I hope you found it helpful. If you'd like to find out more about the podcast, including past episodes, you can visit the website at www.theauthorbiz.com. You can also subscribe to the podcast at iTunes. If you have comments or suggestions for the show, you can leave them at the site or you can ping me on Twitter. I'm at Steve Campbell FL. Please join us again next week for another informative episode. 